Previously on the British Broadcasting Century podcast. Season four, which only ended a week or two ago, was mostly busy with centenary specials, but we also spent a bit of time with the first Welsh station and Shakespeare on the BBC. February 1923 included the Scottish Motor Show, outside broadcasts from theatres, and the hiring of Peter Eckersley as chief engineer of the BBC. But we haven't progressed much, so it's time to speed up, buckle up for an arbitrary new season, which we're calling season five. This time, yes, season five begins, and we're going to go back a hundred years ago of right now, as the early Beeb battles with the press and gets banned from listings. We've got more from our newspaper detective, Andrew Barker, plus more on the Welsh launch, which we've covered previously, but now BBC Radio Wales are airing a sitcom about it. And we speak to writer Gareth Gwynne. So I have written Mm. a sitcom about the launch of the BBC in Wales. It's called Ministry of Happiness. It's set in February 1923, about 5WA, the first ever British Broadcasting Company station in Cardiff. Absolutely marvellous. Right in our wheelhouse. (laughs) It's perfect. Yes, special's done. We're back into the nitty-gritty of the early BBC, the almost day-by-day account of the big moments of the origin story. Welcome to Season 5 of the British Broadcasting Century. London calling. Hello, hello, PK calling, PK calling. Welcome back to this chronological blow-by-blow account of how British broadcasting began. And it is blow-by-blow, almost day-by-day, not quite hour-by-hour, but yes, we are taking things the slow way. Now, months ago, we we paused our deep dive into what happened and when so we could celebrate 100 years of the Beeb. We had 100 years and 100 minutes. We had some exhibitions that you go to in person, and we featured those. And we had a history of religious broadcasting last time. That episode has gone down rather nicely. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for being in touch if you have. It's about time we got back into the day-by-day account of what happened, when and why at the early BBC. Now, I'm going to try and therefore fail almost immediately to this year, where possible, get these podcasts out roughly around the centenary anniversary of each moment, if that makes sense. Because this whole the BBC centenary thing of the end of last year No, that was the first of the centenaries. Coming up, we've got the centenary of the Radio Times later this year. We've got the centenary of Savoy Hill. So much to explore. So I just wonder, would it be quite nice to get all these moments out a hundred years exactly after they happened? And you can follow us on Facebook, join our Facebook group, The British Broadcasting Century, and on Twitter. On Facebook particularly, newspaper detective Andrew Barker has been posting day-by-day accounts of exactly what was happening a hundred years ago as reflected in the press. So thank you, Andrew, for posting those. And uh, if you enjoy them, like them, share them, and uh, join our group. Also, I must applaud the marvellous work of the Twitter account BBC 100 Years Ago. Do follow them. I don't know who they are. I know nothing of them, but I will get them on the podcast at some point, whoever they be, because they're doing great work. Again, reflecting what was in the press and the listings exactly a hundred years ago now. But in audio form, I believe we're the only ones to be doing this right now, which is reflecting what went on a hundred years ago now. So this episode spans around about February the 13th to February the 21st, 1923. Of course, if you're listening much later, that's absolutely fine. You can still enjoy these marvellous stories. But shall we go back a century? Oh, let's. Now, the more observant of you may have noticed that I just said we're going to start in February 13th. Now, we actually left our timeline several episodes ago on February the 16th with uh, the first Shakespeare on the BBC. So 
you know, before we get to the press problems that the BBC were definitely having back in mid-February of 23, three months into their existence, why are we going to go back three days to February the 13th? If we keep on going backwards, we'll never reach Noel's house party on this podcast. Well, the reason I want to go back a few days is to the Cardiff launch. We've already done an episode on that, of course. But right now, there is a BBC Radio Wales sitcom out recreating that very moment in comic style. So I sat down and spoke with its writer, Gareth Gwynn. But first, should we hear a little of it? This is the Ministry of Happiness on This Week on BBC Radio Wales. Oh, and this arrived. It's a copy of the lease. Ah, wonderful. Uh, Norman, I've secured the premises of 5WA's first studio, Flat 1, 19 Castle Street. Which one is that? The one above the cinema? Oh, the cinema closed down. Oh, good. I don't think we can run a station with a cinema beneath us, bashing out tunes on an organ throughout. Who will the downstairs neighbour be? Kinshot's Music Shop. Delighted to welcome to the British Broadcasting Century podcast now, comedy writer extraordinaire. Yes, I went there. I promised I wouldn't, but I did. Gareth Gwynn. Hello, Gareth. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us here. Oh, thanks um, for having me. We, a few episodes ago, I don't know, six episodes ago, and probably something like that, covered the launch of the Cardiff station and having seen the script of your show. And you've got, it's all there. You've done your homework, haven't you? It's all of the stuff yeah. about the right people there, how it all came about. It's one of those programmes where, you know, in horrible histories, the kids' TV show, yeah. whenever they say a fact and it's correct, a little mm. thing pops up and goes, this is actually true. I really wish I could do that on the radio. Because I was a real stickler for the detail, which is quite hard in a sitcom. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah. I wanted to get as much of the real events and the real people, as, as much of that in as I could. And what is odd about the story of 5WA is that it is essentially ridiculous. <laughs> the first six weeks of radio in Wales are chaotic in a way that, in terms of making a sitcom, is almost problematic because it is too ludicrous the number of things that go wrong the number of farcical elements and so what i ended up doing is i just wrote a list of all the people who were there and a list of all the ridiculous events and then i went how do you turn this into something which is true to what happened but which will fit into 28 minutes where you feel like you can follow what's going on so i ended up i had a list of 17 people we've got six actors so I've boiled it down to maybe eight or nine people and I've managed to share the chaos between them. So sometimes something will happen and maybe it didn't happen to that specific person, but it happened. Right. Yes. Um, okay. Artistic license. I need to do a DVD yeah. commentary. You really. do. I think you do, which is which is tricky for an audio for audio medium, isn't it? But it's, it it's important. Um, so uh, so some of the, the true life characters there, um, Arthur Corbett Smith is a, a man of legend who we will get to uh, on a different episode as well. As director, I'm open to it all. Talks, music, casual conversation and plays. A drama in a coal mine so no one needs to worry that they can't see it. Yeah. And something for the kiddiewinks. And the station director who's drunk as well, Mr Fred Roberts. Well, and This is it. So the, there's a book called Broadcasting in the BBC in Wales, which I'm going to show you on Zoom. There it is. Which um, is the book on the history of the BBC. And there are th- sort of like six pages at the start that cover the first year of 5WA. And it's all chaos. But at the back... They've got a list of all the heads of the BBC in Wales. And I think in this book, there's about 12. Five of them are within the first six weeks <laughs> because it was just a revolving door of bosses. Yeah. People sent from London would do a bit and then they would leave it in the hands of someone Welsh who would, as you say, in the case of Frederick Roberts, 
dismissed after 48 hours of being drunk in his office. So Rex Palmer comes back. He's in charge for a couple of weeks. They leave it to someone else. He has enough. And eventually they get to this character, Arthur Corbett Smith, who ends up running BBC Wales for just over a year. 5WA may be the first radio station in Britain, if not the world, to treat radio as its own distinct artistic medium. It has become a home for the true creative and we've developed a genuine bond with our audience far beyond what your company could have ever imagined. But he's he's quite a chaotic character. And all the stories you hear about him, he sounds quite frantic. And he would just put himself on air with no warning. And he'd go on air as a character called Mr Everyman. Who is Mr Everyman? We've had an awful lot of posts for him. It's me, Edith. <laughs> what I find interesting about him is that the way he talks about radio now seems to make more sense than it did back then. He seems to think that radio should be more casual, more relaxed, and that's a nice bit of conflict from a sitcom point of view, because obviously we have John Reith. From next week, all talks will be scripted in advance. I won't put up with it. From a sitcom point of view, that was quite handy, that you had these characters who you know what they're butting up against. I've even plucked out a line of dialogue, which I presume is fictitious and from your brain. John Reith is very important and very serious. Vera, he should see you playing the piano, but something in a minor key. <laughs> a lovely, a lovely evocative uh, sense of the Reith that we all know and tolerate. There's definitely a sense that John Reith was not keen on the way that 5WA was shaping up. And I believe he said something like radio should be broadcasting persons of distinction mm. with this sort of implication that that was not what Wales were doing at the time. <laughs> it, it does seem that the Welsh way and the, and the Cardiff way particularly to begin with went a very different way than other stations. Like, it seems to be, you know, you've got certain stations sort of in the BBC, in the London image, um, you know, when they started Newcastle and Bournemouth and those sorts of places. Whereas Cardiff, and whether it's under Col Colbert Smith or just something in the in the air, in the ether, they kind of put a stamp on, on radio in, in their own unique way, it seems. They really do. And I think, so the way I've set up the episodes is episode one is very much about the launch mm. and in which I cover the fact that they have all these characters coming in and out. And then episode two, the way I've done it is that it's about sort of the first year of 5WA. And as Cardiff is running and there are discussions to launch a Swansea station. And I think as the discussions of what should Swansea be start to take hold, you get the impression that they start looking at Cardiff and they're like, well, do we want it to be like this? Because this isn't really like any of the others. <laughs> yeah. Cardiff did plough its own furrow. It was, I, I think, from, from what I can gather, they did they renamed talks to chats because they thought it was more, um, it didn't sound as formal. They renamed Children's Hour to Hour of the Kiddiewinks, which I find quite a funny idea. <laughs> it's Hour of the Kiddiewinks. What do you think? I hate it. Arthur Corbett Smith wrote a book, which I read, the title is something like Radio, What's Gone Wrong and Why. <laughs> it's something like <laughs> he, after he left the BBC, it's yeah. like 1927, he sort of. And um, there's an element in that that he feels like radio should be treated as its own artistic media rather than just people doing talks, plays that are already on air. And I think Cardiff was trying to do something a little bit different. What else do you want to tell us about it? What, what's, given this is your chance for a director's commentary, yes. what do we need to know behind the scenes? Well, I tell you what, I'm going to rattle through very rattle through. quickly Go a for couple it. of things that might be of interest to people who listen to this podcast specifically. Ministry of Happiness is based on anything I could find 
from the era, which I have tried to squeeze into the script. And that is the books um, that are around, but also I trawled the BBC archive for documentaries and anything, all the anniversaries. I listened to them all and I just found these little snippets of what these characters were like. And so all the things that are in the sitcom, things like Egg Week, where they ask people to bring eggs to the studio. <laughs> Why are there six eggs on my desk? A child turned up with them and said they were for Egg Week. And Egg Week is... This week, apparently. Plays going wrong because they didn't really rehearse because they didn't think they needed to and mm. things like that. Yeah. It's considerably more true to life than I think you would appreciate. Yeah, yeah fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. So it's a two-part sitcom and it's on. We must urge people to go and seek it out on BBC Sounds now slash yeah. soon because these things drop off sounds like a cliff edge, don't they? So grab it while it's there. Yes, do give it a listen. It's called Ministry of Happiness. It stars Stefan Rodri, Kieran Self, Naj Kamal, Marianne Rees, Humphrey Carr and Vern Griffiths who all do a sterling job at variations of posh accents from the 1920s. Absolutely. Well, we, we, we applaud it. We'll be listening in, as they say. We'll be li- as we'll they be, say, yeah. We'll be, we'll be listeners in of it. And what, he has a different word, doesn't he, Corbett Smith? Radiards, those of us who've invested in a wireless set, that's what I propose we call them, radiards. Fascinating. Here in the British Broadcasting Company, we call them listeners in. So I used two words for listeners in that they were piloting. Radiards is one that somebody wrote to the Radio Times. And um, Comradios was the one that Corbett Smith particularly liked, which was a pun on both Comrade and Cymru. Lovely. It's it's too much work. It's a lot of of heavy lifting, that one word, isn't it? Yeah, totally. (laughs) I know that people who do listen listen to this podcast will also hear familiar names. Peter Eckersley, uh, Rex Palmer, John Reith. These names are, are bandied around and it's a fine part of the canon of historical broadcasting celebrations so hurrah oh, for that thanks. thank you gareth thank you very much oh, thank Brilliant. you. the ministry of happiness it's on bbc sounds for a limited time do grab it while you can it will have been on february the 6th and february the 13th if you want to find it there uh yeah it's a two-parter uh since you're special before it's actually been on air should we have a little sneak peek of episode two which will be on the bbc a few days after this podcast lands the rather bizarre major arthur corbett smith joined as station director what we do is art, Norman. Reith's BBC is a machine without a soul. It's a company put together by a bunch of electrical bods to shift radio sets. But our station, Norman, ours creates art which inspires. That's why Swansea should take our programming. Not because a London to Swansea link will cost a fortune. No, side note. We'll put 5WA on the map. I'll make my name and then maybe move to London and usurp John Reith. (laughs) Oh, I fear this is getting out of hand. So that's from the Ministry of Happiness on BBC Sounds Now, written by Gareth Gwynn. And now, a commercial break, all about Paul's next live show. I'm in talks to reenact the first religious broadcast in various places this year, perhaps even in the place where it happened. That would be a marvellous thing. We're trying to make that happen. Now, I'm also looking to put on another show slash talk slash presentation this year of 2023. The Beeb Year One is what I'm tentatively calling it. This is going to be sort of a sequel to the first broadcast that I did last year on stage. But I'm thinking it's it's more a, a one-hour run-through 
1922 to 1923, Auntie's first year, lots of clips and tales, uh, stories and general marvellousness. I'd like to think it's also almost a DJ set. You know what I mean? We'll play a few clips. We'll talk about them. If you'd like it live at your place, get in touch. Paul at paulcarenza.com. That's the same email address, of course, if you'd like to be in touch about the podcast. And some of your emails coming up later. Moving on then, February 13th is when Cardiff launched and February the 16th is when the Beeb aired The Bard. See episode 55 for more on that with Dr Andrea Smith. So that brings us up to date, up to speed and on target for moving forward from here. Well, what else was on the air on February the 16th? Well, listeners at the time couldn't really tell too easily. You see, the press, who'd been printing BBC listings for some time, they were getting rather nervous of this three-month-old toddler BBC. Do three-month-old children toddle? No, they don't. But they were becoming a rival to the press, and so the printed press said, no more listings for you. Here's our newspaper detective, Andrew Barker. The first programmes that were published in the press, the first programme listings, were in the Pall Mall Gazette. Little boxes of what's on as part of an advert for the Marconi phone. Broadcasting now, a miracle in full swing. Are you in this? That was 22nd of November 1922, eight days into the BBC's life was the first time you could really see in print what was going to be on experience necessary the first listings tonight's program london station 6 p.m official weather report 6 to 6 30 copyright news bulletin 8 to 9 vocal and instrumental concert by well-known artists 9 to 9 30 latest news bulletin weather report 9 30 10 30 concert including dance music the above is subject to alteration and extension details of which will be announced verbally from the transmitting station now andrew barker our newspaper detective reckons that the first daily listings in newspapers come in perhaps December the 5th in the Derby Daily Telegraph. Not an advert now, but proper printed listings. Today's broadcasting from Witten. Wavelength, 420 metres. 6.30pm children's stories. 7pm and 10pm news. 7.15 to 10pm concert. Madam Emily Waldron, soprano. Mr Philip Taylor Barrett. The Times started printing listings for 2LO from January the 1st, 1923. Initially, they realised that the public are interested in radio and are quite happy to, to effectively promote radio because they know that, that people are interested in it. Yeah, I guess in those early uh, articles there are being read by far more people than, you can, than, than those who can actually access radio uh, at that point. So really the newspapers are advertising broadcasting, giving it a boost, I suppose, and publicising it to people who can't yet get it before they start going, actually, are we promoting this rival too much? Yes. Later on, the newspaper proprietors are very worried about listeners abandoning the newspapers and instead listening to news broadcasts on the radio and that is why they made the decision to uh, uh, the news proprietors to stop publishing the listings. By February the BBC was making a few enemies or at least not making allies. Theatre producers thought they were stealing their audiences and not paying them to put things on like the opera broadcast. The broadcasters were saying it was all publicity and equally the press thought they were stealing their readers and again not paying to put things in the printed publications and so the press decided from now on if the BBC wanted to steal their readers they would have to pay to have their listings printed. It should be treated as an advertisement as it was originally. So February the 14th, 1923, the Pall Mall Gazette stopped printing radio schedules on the BBC that night. In fact, the very last listing was for the return of the first BBC vicar, Reverend John Mayo. You heard him last episode with his Christmas Eve talk. On February the 14th, he gave a shortish Wednesday talk. Short, sorry, I've misread that. A short ash Wednesday talk, not, not shortish. I thought it sounded a bit informal. After Mayo, no more listings for a bit. 
John Reith was caught off guard by this listings ban. He was in Glasgow at the time with Peter Eckersley checking the new station pre-launch. And bear in mind, he'd only just come from Cardiff to launch the first Welsh station. My congratulations to you. And I know Rex Palmer sends his best wishes too. 5WA has got off to a promising start. Thank you, sir. I must say, I'm very pleased with how things are going so far. Reith was spending a few days at his old home in Scotland, seeing his mum and toying with seeing his old pal slash love interest, Charlie. You may recall from many episodes ago that Reith and Charlie fell out. They were best buddies for many years. And arguably, the fallout with Charlie is what led John Reith to come to London and seek work as first general manager of the BBC. But in mid-February, he decided not to see Charlie. And once he'd finished setting up the Glasgow station, Reith came back to London with no intention of giving way to the press's demands and paying for these listings. They had to find workarounds. Now, one temporary fix was to have each evening announcers read out the next night's schedule but they needed someone else to come to the rescue and thankfully Gordon Selfridge stepped in you see he disagreed as well with this listings ban Selfridge the large store in London placed an advert in the Pall Mall Gazette and when this listing ceased because the newspaper proprietors had agreed that unpaid listings should not be should not be made and they would only accept program listings if they were paid for Selfridge in its in its daily column actually started printing those programme listings. So two days after the listings ceased, in, on the 16th of February 1923, Selfridge said, as a, effectively as a public service, we are now going to begin publishing the two LO listings. From the Pall Mall Gazette Selfridge's column. For the past few days, we've been giving at the bottom of this column the programme that is nightly to be broadcasted from the London station by the British Broadcasting Company. And from the quantity of letters we've received, our readers have appreciated this service. The Selfridges, in, in one of their columns, while they were publishing these listings, they do actually talk about why they did it. Incidentally, we may say that those who wish to listen in up until six o'clock may do so in the accommodation we've provided on the fourth floor of the new building in our wireless department, which we believe is the best equipped in London. Oh yes, for a few weeks now, different department stores have been playing radio in store. 17th of January, for example, 1923. Harrods opened late to encourage customers to gather, to listen to the BBC's concerts and shop while they were there. Selfridges did similar. Radio was good for business. People would listen in store and then buy things, because Selfridges didn't just sell fridges. They also sold radios. They had a, what they call a listening room so that people could listen to the radio. And the two LO broadcasts would start at five in the afternoon, broadcasting children's programmes. And their wireless listening room would close at six, but they actually invited the audience in this column to come and listen to the radio between five and six o'clock in their special listening room. And obviously the publication of the programme listings was helping them sell radios. So Selfridge were happy to, um, to publish the radio listings for the BBC, for 2LO, uh, during the period that the press were, were not publishing. These listings within Selfridge's adverts included a few broadcasting firsts. February the 16th, the first Shakespeare, the quarrel scene from Julius Caesar. On the 17th of February, the first broadcast appeal given by Ian Hay for the Winter Distress League, becoming the week's good cause and later becoming arguably children in need. These were not in official listings, 
but Selfridge is to the rescue. On Friday afternoon, a special concession has been granted to enable the whole of the pantomime Cinderella to be broadcasted. The listings then followed in their column. Interestingly, the very first listing that day was a speaker who'd come from a newspaper, in fact. Five o'clock, Mr Leslie G Mainland, writer of the humorous zoo stories in the Daily Mail, was on the BBC. So the papers wouldn't print the listings, but they would send their journalists down to broadcast. Charming. Other notable broadcasts that went unlisted then included Oliver Lodge's first general wireless talk. Now, Sir Oliver Lodge was the man who really invented tuning and helped popularise the word broadcast. His name sadly forgotten, but some say he was on a par with Marconi. Now, some in the press thought the Selfridges loophole would damage the Pall Mall Gazette's sales, but no, it boosted them. And the Pall Mall Gazette started saying that really they wanted to print the listings again, but they couldn't. It was an industry-wide ban, an order from the newspaper Proprietors Association not to print on behalf of the BBC. And so the Pall Mall Gazette instead printed a little box to point readers to the Selfridges column saying, Tonight's broadcasting programme will be found on page 8, column 1. Yes, courtesy of Gordon Selfridge. Other national papers, they also started to be apologetic about the lack of listings, but again, they had to do what the Newspaper Proprietors Association had told them to do. But this listings ban couldn't last. February the 20th was the day that NPA finally relented to the BBC when John Reith and Sir William Noble of the BBC Board of Governors went to negotiate. The NPA conceded and Reith loved it. They've made proper fools of themselves. It was our first great victory. The NPA backed down and listings started again. And I was surprised in looking through this that the final Selfridge listing was the 26th of February. Only roughly 10 or 11 days after they had started. And at that, on that same day, the Pall Mall Gazette started publishing those listings. So in, that, in the issue of the 26th of February, there are two listings, one published by the paper and the one published by Selfridge. We've been printing below for the past week the only programme that has been available to the general public during this time. The value of our scoop has been seen by the fact that the circulation of this newspaper and the medium that carries it has been so very considerably enhanced while it lasted. Now, however, our scoop is over. We could not hope that it would last forever, and the programme is again being published in the newspapers. We do not feel it necessary any longer to include it, and we propose that tonight should be its last appearance in this column. For the last time, then, do we insert this broadcasting programme? I'm, I'm looking at it just in front of me now. It's because you've, you've kindly sent it over. And I, it's fascinating to see. You can, yep, you can see the Selfridge listings saying what's on the orchestra. They, they, they list the pieces, uh, who's uh, composed it and what's on when. And But it's also, yeah, it's also elsewhere listed by the actual newspaper itself. That's right. Well, quite unusual for, for someone to publish two listings in one day. It's temporary home for an unloved auntie. Other newspapers then started printing radio schedules too. Circulation boomed when they did. It was very quickly found that the newspaper listings actually increased the sales of newspapers at that time, which is why it was then introduced relatively quickly. The Guardian started publishing around about the same time. It was the Manchester Guardian, and their first listing was just the Manchester programme. But the next day... They started publishing the programmes through all the other stations as well, all the main stations. So I suspect, although I don't know, that listeners would probably got in touch with The Guardian and said, can we have at least some listings for the other stations as well? But all of this encouraged Reith to think about the publication of his own, the Radio Times. It wouldn't come along for seven months, but the idea was born here in this spat with the press over publicity and money. If you couldn't rely on the press, maybe the BBC should print their own listings. And they did from September that year. 
But back in late February, to celebrate the return of the listings and realising that actually mentions of BBC and radio boosted sales, the Daily Mirror ran a competition for readers. To stimulate interest among listeners in, the Daily Mirror offers three prizes of £25, £10 and £5 for the ideal broadcasting programme. Programme as in uh, schedule. What do you want on the air? It should be varied, interesting and inexpensive. Well, talk about inexpensive. Arthur Burroughs and his programme department were about to get free ideas of what to broadcast. It's a great plan for how to get a focus group. The Pall Mall Gazette ran a similar competition. Prize, one radio set, a Gicophone two-valve cabinet set, approximate range 100 miles, and the second prize, a Gicophone number one crystal set, with a range of much less, 25 miles. And a Popmaster mug. Oh no, that came later. So if you'd like to know the winning entries of those newspaper competitions, with readers sending in ideas of what they wanted to hear on the air, I'll let you know on a future episode of the podcast. So, listings restored, we can move forward from here. Next time, the first political debate on the BBC. Does it go well, or does it go terribly, terribly wrong? Sparking complaint letters from vicars. Well, we'll find out next time. Plus, our special guest will be news broadcaster extraordinaire Rita Chakrabarti. You can catch the full video interview of that already on our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. Just time for some emails before we go. Alan Pemberton got in touch, said that he enjoyed the 100 years in 100 minutes specials, but did note that despite my best efforts to trim, trim, trim to exactly 33, 33 and 34 minutes to make it 100 minutes in total, the first episode of those specials actually brushes over that into 33 minutes and one second. So in fact, a 100 years special was 100 years in 100 minutes and 0.4 of a second. Now I'd fix it, but I'd don't know which 0.4 of a second to cut out if I wanted to. And it's fun to be rebellious. So, tough. We went over. And an email from Neil Jackson, who says, Hi, Paul, I've just finished reading Broadcasting from Within by Cecil Lewis. He says, I don't have as much time to read as I'd like at the moment. Thanks mainly to having a baby daughter. Well, if any listener would like Broadcasting from Within read to them, do join our Patreon group, where in video form, I've been reading to you Broadcasting from Within with uh, explanatory introductions. So it is taking forever. But we're doing it bit by bit. And uh, it's a fun read, in fact. Well, Neil Jackson agrees. Neil says, I really enjoyed the book. And it's an easier read than I expected and amazing to hear an authentic voice from the very earliest days of broadcasting. Yeah, Cecil Lewis was the first deputy director of programmes and this is the history of broadcasting when the BBC was 18 months old. Neil says, one thing that intrigued me was the mention of simultaneous broadcasting. I didn't realise there was so much sharing between stations so early on. Ah, yes, indeed, Neil. We will get to simultaneous broadcast in about uh, 10 or 12 episodes time. That comes in summer of 1923. Chief Engineer Peter Eckersley links up the stations so they can share programming. But what does it become? London dominance. A chance for head office to reduce the provincial offerings, instead thinking that London always knows best. Sometimes maybe it does. A stopped clock is right. Twice a day, after all. Simultaneous broadcasts were often concerts, and um, yeah, London, I suppose, had access to West End stars and the like, so they did broadcast them throughout the land. I think maybe at the cost of local performers. Neil concludes, also, do you know who the mystery Tame Wizard is, mentioned in the final chapter? Ah, yes. Now, uh, Cecil Lewis's broadcasting from within ends with little character profiles of lots of the people, but he doesn't name the Tame Wizard as this person is nicknamed, saying this is a mystery genius. It is only right that in this mysterious science of wireless telephony, there should be a mystery man. There is such a mystery man connected with broadcasting. He is excessively reticent, both about himself and his work. And for this reason, I am not giving his photograph 
or even his name. We do know who the tame wizard was that Cecil Lewis refers to. And with an answer on this, let's hear it from the tame wizard's grandson, David Jervis, who posted this on YouTube. My grandfather, Henry Joseph Round. Strangely, he is not named. He is referred to as the tame wizard. Lewis writes, He worked equally mysteriously and as a consequence without that widespread recognition he deserved during the war. And I am told that his work with direction-finding apparatus located the German fleet coming down the Kiel Canal and timed the Battle of Jutland. I am told too that he possesses records of exactly what the Zeppelins said when they talked to each other in their raids over London and many more interesting things of this nature. But as far as wireless telephony goes, he is one of the great brains in the country. I doubt even if there is anyone living who knows more about the technical side of wireless than the tame wizard. We call him the wizard because he is constantly helping and advising us in all our work and has an uncanny faculty of spotting defects and improving the quality of transmission. We call him tame because of his twinkly smile and his good-heartedness. A year ago, we were using ordinary commercial telephone microphones. They were very imperfect in the reproduction of musical sounds. And it so happened that one day the wizard wished to get a standard transmission on which to test some receiving apparatus. He was surprised and annoyed to find that the microphones then in use could not give him this standard transmission. So, much in the same way as one would set off for a round of golf, he decided to invent a microphone. Within six months, he had evolved something which rivalled anything that others had been able to produce. He accomplished this work not with an army of assistants, but with one or two capable helpers and his own immense knowledge, imagination and colossal work. For months he worked 15 and 16 hours a day. Enthusiastic as a schoolboy over every detail, he is often to be seen slouching about with his old felt hat and his greatcoat down to his feet, a cigarette in his mouth and a twinkle in his eye. Wherever he goes, he leaves his unmistakable traces of Vaseline, cotton wool, felt and rubber sponge behind him. The wizard is the most open-hearted, lovable creature you can imagine, utterly oblivious of everything except the work in hand, curt when he is busy and genial when he has leisure, untiring in effort and visionary in thought. These are the ingredients of genius. You, O oh reader, as one of the many millions of listeners in the country, will listen with greater appreciation when you know that the perfect cello tones, the bright vocal qualities and the natural speech have largely been made possible for you by this one short, modest little man whose name you do not even know, who writes in the papers anonymously, who flies from publicity as a bat from the daylight, and who hardly ever speaks into the microphone he has perfected. Who is he, then, this Colossus, you ask? Ah, that is a secret. He is the tame wizard. 
Thank you, David Jervis. You can uh, catch that on YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes if you would like. And yeah, Captain H.J. Round was the tame wizard, as mentioned in Cecil Lewis's book, Broadcasting from Within. Next time, the first political debate and Rita Chakrabarti join us. As season five continues of The British Broadcasting Century, presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights are reserved. Do rate and review us where you found this podcast. It'll help us find new listeners. Stay informed, educated and entertained. Join us next time as we head back exactly 100 years ago on this British Broadcasting Century.